I want to talk with you just a little bit today about this business about who Jesus is and his role as Messiah in our lives. And um, we're going to look at Scripture together. You came to church hoping to look at Scripture today. We're going to do that today. And I want to start um, by telling you something that happened to me when I was a little boy. Uh, you, many of you know that we moved uh, to Vancouver, British Columbia when I was 11 years of age from a small town of about 18,000 to a large city uh, with over a million people in it. At that point, it's larger even now. Housing was hard to come by. We were kind of making this transition as a family. I, have, I was 11, had a brother who was, have a brother who's younger than me. He was six, my sister was four. And the house that mom and dad rented was a very large house that had multi-floors. And we lived on the main floor and they sublet the floors above us and below us, two floors above, one below. And consequently, we lived in a fairly small space, five rooms, a, uh, a living room which became the bedroom for the kids. So the three of us had beds set up in that living room. And then the dining room, which we became the living room for the family. A kitchen, they had a dinette in there and we would eat in there. And then a bedroom in the back. And my dad, my father worked afternoon shifts. So he would leave the house, I don't know, somewhere around three o'clock in the afternoon before, usually before I got home from school. And he'd be in bed, you know, getting home about one o'clock at night. He'd be in bed as I went to school. So. For much of my teenage years, that was our life, though eventually we moved out of the house. But I remember lying in bed, uh, listening to my mother in what was the dining room, but we'd made into a living room, and there were these pocket doors that closed those two spaces, and my brother and sister in bed asleep, and I would listen to my mother uh, for that year or so that we were in that house, kind of doing life, if you will, as a single parent. And um, uh, remember even lying there thinking, I wonder what this is like for her. And she would do things so that um, she wouldn't want to wake us up, but I would, I would hear her in the other room doing stuff that adults do. And so I'd be in bed and she would be reading. Most nights she read. We didn't even have a television at that point. And when she read, she always ate potato chips. And you know, she would try to eat potato chips quietly so that I wouldn't know she was eating them, I think, because they really would, I really want some. And so I, I remember watching her at one point where she would eat potato chips this way, and she would break them inside the bag so she wouldn't crunch them in her mouth, and we, I wouldn't hear them. And then she'd put it in her mouth like this and crush them with her tongue against the roof of her mouth all in the hope that I wouldn't hear. In the meanwhile, I'm hearing this. And we're gonna ask, do you like potato chips? Do you like to eat potato chips? You don't like potato chips? <laughs> Marissa, do you like potato chips? All right, okay. Okay, Marissa, we're gonna ask you to eat potato chips for us this morning, okay? <laughs> And you can make as much noise as you want because I want the whole congregation to hear that rustling bag. And so we get the sense of you get to do something that the rest of us don't get to do. And I would listen. I'd go, oh, I want a potato chip so badly. And to this day, I, whenever I eat a potato chip, I think of my mother. Which is kind of strange when you think about it. This must be something weird about me. But I, one of the things I remember thinking there was, what's it like for her with dad being gone every night? Do you hear the rustling? I love it. I love it. 
What would it be? I mean, some of you know what that's like. You are married to a spouse and you work swing shifts back and forth. And you have to kind of do life at different timetables. Or some of you are single parents and you get what it means to raise kids in those kinds of settings. Is it lonely? Are there points in any of our lives where we have to do life a little bit by ourselves? And when it comes to that, I think about Mary. Here we are coming up to Christmas and I wonder if she was ever lonely. She was gonna be a single parent more or less at first, at least that's the way it was gonna work out if you know the story. And I wonder what questions she had about the setting that she faced. I'm gonna have a baby, I don't have a husband. An illegitimate child was the possibility. What would she do in that setting? I want to um, examine that question today and others like it as we think about Mary. You can see we've got a silhouette of her that we think what maybe, maybe she looked like. And this is the way she typically is in a nativity scene, right? And what's gonna happen throughout the next few weeks is we're gonna add another character to the nativity scene. And we're gonna get, we're gonna ask what, what, would, what kind of questions would they bring to the scene in Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born? We're gonna carry it on past Christmas because we know that the shepherds and the wise men actually showed up after the fact. So we're gonna go into the new year building this nativity scene. And if you will, we're creating a play. We're creating a drama. There's this drama of the nativity scene. What happened there? And by the time we're done, each week we're gonna ask, what part do you play in that drama, in that cast, if you will, that cast of characters? And so to set the stage for that today, will you turn to the book of Luke with me, please? If you're unfamiliar with scripture, Luke is about that far through, okay? Three quarters of the way through. It's the third gospel, we call it, uh, in, in church circles, or the third biography of Jesus. And if you don't own a Bible, you'll find this one in the pew rack in front of you. Follow along. Uh, if, as a matter of fact, if you, don't, if you don't own a Bible, take that one home as our gift to you, all right? We're gonna look in Luke chapter one. The pages are on the screen behind me, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we read, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a town of Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Don't be afraid. Mary, you found great favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since, oh, here's the problem, angel. I have no husband. I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. No word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. Your, may, you, may your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. Now, we don't know where this scene took place. 
I could imagine perhaps it's probably in a place where she's by herself because there's nothing in the story, there's nothing in the narrative that, sh- that points to other people there seeing the angel or other people saying, Mary, who you're talking to. So she probably would appear in a place of quiet solitude somewhere or other. You know, teenage girls get to do that, 15, 16 years of age. These days, they often go to their bedroom, don't they? And they want some quiet, and we get that. And in the midst of that quiet, an angel shows up. Verse 28, we reach, the angel goes, greetings. And I want to go, are you kidding me? That's what angels say when they first say hello to you, greetings? I mean, (laughs) how about... Don't scare me quite so much. How about kind of creeping up on me slowly and whispering, hello, I don't want you to be afraid, but I'm an angel and I'm going to start talking louder and louder. I mean, maybe something like that or, or, you know, a little tight light tap on the shoulder. Who's there? And there's this angel suddenly appears. But no, this angel just shows up to this young girl and goes, greetings. If I were in my bedroom, I'd be under the bed in a heartbeat. And let me tell you, that'd be hard to get under there these days. Okay, so... And it would take days for me to venture out. They'd have to get paramedics to bring me out. That's the only way I'd get if an angel showed up to me and said, greetings. And then imagine, hear what this young girl discovers. Her favor before God is going to do this. Her favor before God is going to cause her to be pregnant. It doesn't sound very favorable, does it? You're going to be pregnant and no one but God is going to be able to explain this pregnancy. And I don't know if she wondered, how is this a favor? This doesn't sound very kind. This doesn't sound very favorable to me. Yet by the end of the the passage we read, Mary is willing to obey. Hmm. Starts out with the favor of God, a pregnancy, and then an obedience on her part. You know, this business about this favor with God... It really is the place where Roman Catholic theology begins to put some language and some understanding behind the the Mary that they understand Mary to be, where they put her in a position of high authority and devotion within Roman Catholic circles. It's also the place where the struggle begins between Protestants and Roman Catholics about Mary's role in church life. And I'm going to be real candid about about that with you today, that... Uh, Roman Catholics would never say that Mary should be worshipped. That is not Roman Catholic theology. But they would say that she should be be venerated because, according to Roman Catholic theology, some of you from this background, she can intercede before God on behalf of individuals and individual sins. Protestants say, no, we don't believe that. We believe that she was a young girl who was highly favored by God, and God chose her to be Jesus' mother. And really, verse 28, if you will, is the beginning of the great divide between two expressions of Christian faith, Roman Catholics and Protestants. And since, since uh, the, the moment of the, the Protestant Reformation, there's been arguments back and forth between Roman Catholics and Protestants over the role of Mary. And if anything, that argument has just increased in years as, that, as history has moved forward. And Protestants have pointed fingers at Roman Catholics and say, you worship Mary too much. And the, Pro- the Roman Catholics say, we don't worship her, we venerate her. And then Roman Catholics would point at Protestants and say, you don't pay enough attention to Mary. And we'd say, no, we do. We recognize her as the mother of Jesus. And we feel like there's, there's this great divide between us. And frankly, it's caused for some mean-spirited finger-pointing from either camp to the other camp. May I remind you, in this Christmas season, this Advent season, 
that Roman Catholics and Protestants have far more in common than we do in disagreement. This became, um, came home to me in a very powerful way a few years ago when we were first starting Direct Line on WSOY, Wednesday nights. And Doug and I were trying to work our way through who we do we bring on as guests and what is, what's the show feel like. And, and so um, somewhere along the line I said, why don't we ask a Roman Catholic to join us on the air occasionally? And I reached out to Father Joe Malloy, who is the pastor down at Holy Family uh, Roman Catholic Church in South Shores. And I'd never met him before, but he agreed to come on and, and um, we had this wonderful discussion. And so not in an effort to catch him in any way, but I just want our audience to hear and for me to learn, uh, if you will, as a representative of the Roman Catholic Church, how do you guys, I said, how do you guys feel when it comes to, what gives you the right to go to heaven? What, in Protestant language, how do you know you're saved? And Roman Catholic wouldn't use the word saved, but how do you know you have salvation? And this was his answer. I don't remember the exact syntax, but this essentially is what he said. He said, I am a Christian and I get to go to heaven based on the blood of Jesus Christ as applied to my life through God's grace. <laughs> I want to go, well, there's, frankly, that's, that's just not Roman Catholic theology. That's not Protestant theology. That's good Christian theology. No one ever said it better. Why do you get to go to heaven? Not through, through anything you've done, but officially Roman Catholic theology is, I get, I get to go to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ that's given to my life through grace. Surely if that's our common understanding, we could learn from each other, we could discuss, and we could see what are, where are the places of agreement, not the places of disagreement. There are places of disagreement, but there are plenty of places of agreement. For example, uh, here's another matter in which we are in agreement with Roman Catholics. Uh, just uh, a week ago Friday, November 28th, the, week, the day after Thanksgiving, the Center for Di Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, issued their annual report on the state of abortion in the United States. And here it is in 2014, they're talking about figures in 2011 and what happened in abortion in 2011. And uh, we know this, that in the mid-1980s, one out of three pregnancies in the nation ended in abortion. But as uh, pro-life thought has gained traction uh, throughout the country in more recent years, that the rate of abortions in the nation has dropped to the point where in 2011, it was down to 18%. Basically, one in five abortions, pardon me, one in five pregnancies in 2011 ended in abortion. Now we say, well, that's way better. One in three to one in five, that's good news. From about 33% down to 18%, that's all good news. Well, I would remind you nonetheless, that still means in 2011, 730,322 children were reported as being aborted. But I would say this, we'd be in a far worse state if the Roman Catholics had not stepped up and said, we're gonna, we're gonna help lead the charge on this issue. And I wanna say to those of you from that tradition, we have dozens, if not probably hundreds, if I think, of ex-Roman Catholics, if you will, in the life of our church. And I wanna say thank you for being so vocal and so, um, such leading figures in that whole matter. Having said that, I'm also aware of this, that Mary, if she were alive today, would be a candidate to have an abortion, wouldn't she? 
Single girl, 15, 16 years of age. Pregnant, no husband. There are some of you in this room who face that same situation. Both women and men. I know women carry the children, but often an abortion is a decision that's made by men or women. Figures also tell us that 43% of all women under the age of 45 are post-abortive. Catch me on that, what am I saying? 43% of women who are under the age of 45 years of age have had an abortion. They've had one abortion and they are more than likely half of them. Another 22% or so will have a second abortion. Okay, so 43% of women under the age of 45, we have tons of hundreds of ladies in our congregation who are under the age of 45, many of whom are sitting in this room today. And you'd say, that happened in my life. Some of you over the age of 45, that happened in my life. And Wayne, you talk about being pro-life and all it does is bring condemnation and bring great pain to me. Men are saying, I didn't have a choice in that matter or I was the one who forced the issue. Hmm. Can I say this very clearly as the pastor of this congregation today? If this issue is in your life's history, don't despair. For those of you who have experienced abortion, male or female here this morning, I want to remind you that in this season of light and love and God's visit to us and family being created, in this season of grace being demonstrated to humanity by the coming of Jesus Christ, we embrace you fully. And I pray, I pray that God's tender arms will wrap around you today to help you understand his loving perspective on you. And if you're here today and you're considering abortion, there are plenty of people in this congregation, people on staff, relationships we have in the community to direct you to people who have a wise, can help you make wise, life-giving choices. And it's hard, I, I'm, I know it is, but if, that, if that's you today, you're facing maybe abortion, we can help you with that. If you're post-abortion, you need some help to kind of work through why you'd made that decision and how it all came about. We've got people who can help you there. And you don't have to call one of us men on staff. Okay, that may be weird if you're a lady or guys, if you want to talk to somebody, call one of the, guy, one of the men on staff. But by all means, reach out to a staff member of whatever gender and let us walk through that together. Because I, I think about Mary. What would she have done in our day and age? It, it just points out to me again how important children are in the life of this church, both those who are born and those who are unborn. And we have, we have children placed in all sorts of family profiles these days in our church. We have some families that are the typical family. You've got a husband and wife. It's their, they've never been married before. They've never had children except together. And they are this nuclear family, if you will, where they've got 2.3 children. Sort of, you know what I mean? They've got two kids and they've got a dog and a cat and three goldfish. And they live in a house with a picket fence. We've got some who live like that, but I'm quite aware that probably not most of us live there. The picket fence ideal is not always around in families anymore, is it? We have single dads in this church. We have single mothers. We have blended families. We've got families that have um, 
have foster kids. We've got families that have got, you know, uh, adopted kids, multiracial families. We've got it all in this church. And each one of those children in those settings is extremely important. You need to hear that very clearly. It's, it's one of the reasons if I could kind of sidestep for just a minute and do a little bit of ad for just a moment. It's one of the reasons why we're working on the back end of the building. Very intentionally saying, can we create more space for children and for family ministries? And I've, I, I asked Lori if she would come and spend some time with me. Come on up, Lori. And spend some time on stage with me today. Just kind of reminding you what we're doing right now and why we are so intentional in saying we're going to reach out to families. So we're doing a building project back there. Some of you have looked into that step-in stuff and we're going to ask you to participate in it next week. Lori, can you remind everybody why we're involved in, in this project called Step-In? Well, first of all, um, people that attend this church keep adding to their own families and you keep bringing your friends with you that have a lot of kids as well. So that's part of the issue. We just have a great number of children and families that are coming. And through our uh, study of our building, we have a lot of space, but it's not always organized in the best way uh, for the kind of ministry that we want to do. And so uh, by reorganizing the space that we have, uh, more kids and more families can come. That's why we're doing what, That's why we're what's doing the plan? It. What, what's, what, the plan? what's the plan? Luckily, plans are uh, underway. There's a lot of dust and noise and stuff happening on that end of the building. But if you look, we have a great graphic there that shows part of what we're going to be doing uh, and reorganizing our space. Um, those of you that um, have attended for a while, you know that it's a long trek down to drop the littlest ones off and then back down the hallway, up the stairs, and down another long hallway to drop off the older kids. And we get used to it around here and we're okay with it. But for a first time, guest, that can be a little off-putting. And so we want everyone to have a great experience, have a great safe environment for their kids. And so we're going to be developing a new, really lobby, welcoming area for all families to come in, check in their kids. And um, the bottom floor is going to open up into what was the former well area. And that's going to be um, nursery suites. So our littlest ones are going to be right there. And then they'll be able to go on back uh, for um, the rest of the preschool area. And then up top, uh, older kids can get checked in and go right upstairs to a new F4 area that's going to be on a new second floor um, in what is currently the well area. So um, our kids are going to be a little bit uh, more accessible for families to drop them off and have great new spaces so they can learn about Jesus while they're here. All right, no more of those narrow hallways. Well, they, no weren't, they, were, they were quite wide when we built them. You just all yeah. kept having children. Yeah. <laughs> and so now they seem yeah. very narrow. So yeah. that, what do you hope is going to come as a result of all this? Well, I would say that... Um, really a, a dream that was birthed in me. Um, many years ago, when I first came on staff and I got to go to my first children's ministry conference, and I remember just coming away from that really burdened for families and for kids and just praying that First Christian Church would be a church where families would come and they would find um, God who could redeem and restore their family's story and that together we could walk and help our kids take one step closer to Jesus. That's it. Yep, Thanks, Lord. That's it. Thanks. Yeah. That really is it, guys. That's what we're hoping for, that the ministry of this church will continue to reach into the lives of children. And if you want to help us in that next week, you probably know about this already. Uh, there's, I think there are even envelopes in the pew rack today. Um, next, we're going to take an offering, and we're going to say, can we, can we raise, frankly, it's a lot of money. $150,000 is our goal in the, by the end of the year. Maybe you could join us next week, or you could at least let us know what you would maybe want to do before the end of the year. Because I just, I really, I, we got the kids program, we got our stuff down on the block, and 
Can we be a church where we would be many ways like Mary? I got questions about how it's all going to work out, but she had questions about how it's all going to work out, but she said, I'll step in. You got this young teenage girl who was pregnant outside the bonds of marriage, and, but she still said, okay, I'll do it. I, I can't imagine how distraught she must have been at first. I mean, some of you can, you've lived that. For that matter, surely she had this thinking to herself. Why, do, why, do, why does the Son of God have to be born to me? Why can't the Son of God be born to a normal couple? And why was the Son of God, why was, what's this business about? Theologically, why do we say that it's really important that Mary was a virgin? That there was no man involved for this reason, friends. So there, there was no doubt after the fact that Jesus was divine. See, think about what's happening here. This was God reaching into humanity in the ultimate missionary um, adventure, if you will. This was cross-cultural missions at its basic. This is, this is God saying, I'm going to leave where I live, and I'm going to go into a different culture. I'm going to leave heaven with all the... This, beings of heaven, and I'm going to go hang out with humans. And when he got here, when Jesus got here, he'd left heaven, he had to know what it was like to work with humans, and as in learning, like in any other missionary, he had to learn a new language, but in this case, it wasn't just that God was going to speak Aramaic, the language of the day, but he was going to speak, have to learn a new language as people spoke to him with words of hate and anger and bitterness and rage and eventually murder by crucifixion. It was the ultimate humanitarian mission. And this was God reaching for us. If, if it wasn't a virgin birth, then later on people would claim, well, he was simply a wise man with good teaching. We didn't need just a wise man with good teaching. We needed a savior. We needed somebody who could say, I am God and through my acts, I will provide forgiveness of sins. But nonetheless, who are we kidding? It must have been troubling for Mary. <laughs> it certainly was. And then you get to verse 34 and she goes, okay, it's not only troubling, but I want to know how was this going to work? The major question, okay, so I'm going to have a baby, but how's that going to work? And this business of overshadowing by the Holy Spirit, and she's got a thousand questions, and I love it. She wants to know the mechanics of how God is going to work out this plan for her life. And like us, we would say, well, I know God wants me to do that. I feel it right down in my gut, but how's it going to work out? I like that the Christmas story leaves room for perplexity in life that not all of it is figured out at one time. Mary, Mary doesn't deny her doubts, and the gospel, the story, refuses to downplay the fact that she is perplexed and that Jesus' conception is downright bewildering. It is, even to Jesus' own mother. I find that to be a real freeing truth, that it's okay to doubt. Perplexity happens and too often as Christians, we deny this. We say, we want to wrap up everything in a nice little, nice little Christmas bow and say, there's my faith. I would challenge that kind of faith as being, frankly, too simplistic and probably not a true faith because a true faith says, it's easy to be a person of faith when it's all good and when there are no questions. Faith is, I'm going to trust in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the questions, 
How is this gonna work? Mary says, I'm confused. But then she says, but, verse 38, may your word to me be fulfilled. I think she was probably confused much of her life, to be honest. She has the baby. They have to rush off to Egypt because Jesus is about to be killed. He grows up. We think she loses her husband along the way. He must have died. And by the time they get Jesus' 30 years of age, he finally goes on this ministry. She's waited all those 30 years plus the nine months of pregnancy. How is this all going to work out? Jesus starts this ministry and it doesn't go the way she'd wanted Yeah, he gets a few people following him, but he seems to be making a lot of people angry as well. And so at one point in Jesus' ministry, if you read this in the Gospels, Mary and her other children who come after Jesus, they come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you're sounding kind of weird these days, and it's not going the way in which we thought it would go. You should come home, and we should should reboot. Start over. And yet... Jesus stays doing ministry. Three and a half years into that ministry, he's actually killed. And you, you know the scene perhaps, that as Jesus is on the cross, he says to one of his disciples, look, there's my mother, I'm dying. She is now your responsibility. You don't think she had some questions in the middle of all of that? How is this gonna be? The angel showed up and said, I'm highly favored. How is this me being favored? Probably not till after the resurrection. Was she able to see in which the ways in which her obedience actually made a difference? How's that going for you? How's that going? God's calling you to do something. God's calling you to, close, to walk more closely with him and you're going, I don't want to because I got some unanswered questions. Well, if you want all your questions answered, then it's not faith. It's just you making a decision based on all the facts. Faith requires some obedience to follow God even when you have some questions. I've got lots of questions. You know, here's some observations from the story first. Obedience to God's plan doesn't eliminate ponderings or questions. I've got lots of questions about life, about my life, about your life, about our life. But those questions don't preclude obedience. Not blind obedience, not just, you know, whatever. Not case sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's not that, but more so, it's faithful obedience to the things that God's called me to be and who God's called me to be and the things that God's called me to do. Because I'm, if I'm a person of faith, I have to say that obedience to God's work in my life, obedience to God's plan has to assume that God has a bigger brain than mine. Because I can th- see how things are gonna go. You don't think that Mary... In that moment of quietness, when the angel, after the angel left, go, well, I don't know how this is going to work out. And she couldn't foresee that her son was going to die and then be risen from the dead. But she obeyed anyway. God's plan was bigger. God, God's brain was bigger. Part of being faith, of making a faith assessment in our lives before God is that we say, okay, I'm going to obey because God has a bigger understanding of where this is going than I know, understand. If you can't make that faith assessment that God's got a bigger plan and God thinks about it more clearly and knows more clearly than you, then probably you can't obey. It's going to be an effort of frustration. Because obedience before God and what God's calling us to do has to start with this journey. That we have to come to the place where we say, in faith, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of humanity and of each of us personally. And we can't obey and live the way in which God wants us to live unless we make that big faith leap and say... I've got some how questions, yes. But all of scripture resounds with this idea. 
that in the long run, it's all about Jesus Christ coming so that we would have our sins forgiven and that we would then in faith respond. Has it all worked out for us in all of our lives? Probably not. And as a matter of fact, to kind of point that out to you, I want to just kind of, I want to tell a story that probably goes against preaching rules. Preaching rules are such that you should never tell a story about yourself if you, look, if you end up looking like the good guy. Um, but I'm going to do that, if you don't mind. I'm going, to, I'm going to break the rules and just tell you just a brief understanding of when I came to understand obedience, it was a long process. Many of you know that um, prior to being in pastoral ministry, Leslie and I were on the road as musicians. And we had, if you will, a successful career doing that. And we were making good money, great money for a young couple. And we did four world tours with that instrument sitting right up there on that, that black keyboard up there and a few others and a big band. And it was a wonderful life. Went to Africa. We saw all of Europe and much of Asia. And it was, who? I mean, we were now 20s. What more could there be? People were paying us to do it. The tour ended uh, after doing Africa in 1985, after being in Africa in 1985. And um, we came home. We had six months here in the U.S. before we were supposed to meet the band in Poland. And during that period of time, a little church in Oklahoma said, will you come play the piano for us on weekends? And I said, sure. We, had, we could rest. For, we had the funds to rest for six months. So I said, okay, I'll sign off on that. Long story short, they said, oh, by the way, we don't have a preacher. Would you preach this weekend? I said, okay, I have a music business degree. That is far removed from preaching. What, what do I know about preaching? I'm not a preacher. I can't preach. Would you just tell us a couple stories this week then about what road life was like overseas? Oh, I can do that. Okay, so I did that. And I'm kind of standing to the edge of the side of the, there's no way I'm standing in the pulpit, you know what I mean, to tell these stories. I worked from, a, worked from a three by five card. And then they said, would you do that the next week? And so I did it the next week. And six months later, I'm doing it every week, but I'm out of road stories. <laughs> you can only, you know, you can only say that so many times. And so a long story short, we're about to, we were about to go back overseas, meet the band in Poland and in a meeting with the elders, um, in which they'd invited me in to say, Wayne, you're leaving any ideas that you should give to us and, you know, and what you should do. And I'm clueless. I'm a piano player. That's it. You know, and I don't know. You know, good luck <laughs> to you guys. It's been lovely. But <laughs> an older elder in the group, Charles Harris, who rarely said anything in elders' meetings, into the meeting, great frustration in everyone's heart. What to do next? 40 people in the church stands up and he points his finger. I have a word from God for you, Wayne. Oh, Charlie has something to say in his 80s. God's calling you to be the pastor of this church. I didn't want to hear that. I had a great career going. I was making decent money. I knew what they were going to pay. And I knew nothing about preaching or anything else. I went home to Les and said, you're not going to believe this. We stayed. And I got to tell you, from that point, for till I was about early 30s, period of four to five years, I struggled. Every week I'd struggle. I'd sit behind that desk on Monday mornings after the weekend and I'd go, what am I doing here? My friends are doing really well. And if I was to tell you the names of the people who are in that band, they are world-renowned today. They called about two years into that deal and said, Wayne, 
We're looking for somebody to do music seminars all around the world about how music can work in churches. Will you lead it? And I said yes. And then after I said yes, about three days later, they came back and they said, we don't think you're the one. It took me a long time to settle in and say, God, this is not a short-term assignment, is it? This is not a short-term mission on my part. This is, I don't want this to be my vocation. I had lots of questions, but I gotta tell you today, even though my friends are still doing exceptionally well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change their position with me for all the world. Those questions are long answered and pondered out now, and I'm quite clear that this is the vocation that God has for me, and it, it took a few years, but I was willing to say, okay, I'll stay here for now, just for now. But after a period of time, no, it's not just for now. This is what God has for me, and I still have some unanswered questions about some of the intimate details of, but here it is, almost 30 years on, I'm willing to wait for those answers. And in the meanwhile, live it out with you guys. The worship team is gonna come back right now and they're gonna sing a song that really begins to put some language. We asked Mike to write a song based on today's sermon that would um, put some questions that probably are now flowing around in your head about how this might play out because the truth matters, if I'm gonna walk with God, here you go, Fred. Thanks, bud. If I'm gonna walk with God, then I've gotta get myself to the nativity scene. And I gotta be one of the ones who worship Jesus Christ, that infant child. And I gotta be willing to get there with all my questions. Mary must have had a ton. Scripture says that Mary just pondered all these, uh, when you get to the, uh, the night that Jesus is born, Mary just pondered all these things in her heart. You ain't kidding. For me to get here, I gotta bring my questions, and you do too. And then in faith, I gotta say, I'll start with Jesus and go from there. If this is a drama that's being built here, and a play that's being played out over the course of human history. And I gotta be willing to be part of the cast. Questions and all, so do you.